Welcome to Felon, a true crime podcast. In this, our second episode, we discuss a case involving a series of brutal murders that forged an unforgettable connection between the city of Adelaide and the small town of Truro. Again, a reminder that this case does involve some descriptions of a graphic nature, so listener discretion is again advised. Australia has produced its fair share of serial killers. In 1992 and 1993, seven skeletons were found in the Belanglo State Forest. In 1996, Ivan Milat was convicted of the murders and soon sentenced to life imprisonment. But almost 20 years before Belangolo, there was Truro. 23rd of December, 1976. An idling car adds a sombre drone to the morbid tranquility of the scene. In the headlights, two silhouettes lumber slowly, hindered by the weight of a third, who slumps and sways like a lifeless bridge between them. They stumble in unison, the sound of the idling car becoming dull as they drift from the light. The lifeless shell they carry has served their purpose and will now be their secret. A tie that will bind them in life and in time, death. They move further from the gaze of the headlights, deeper into the scrub. She is laid on the sandy ground, her final resting place. They collect sticks, leaves, bark and she is draped with a makeshift blanket of the collected debris. She is now at peace, a stark contrast to the primal and violent struggle that occurred in the moments prior. She is the first, but will not be the last. Approximately two hours earlier that night. A busy night in Rundle Mall, the main shopping destination of the city of Adelaide. Shoppers frantically scurried for last-minute gifts as Christmas drew close. It was in this retail frenzy that 18-year-old Veronica Knight became separated from a friend she was shopping with at the time. This was a time before mobile phones, so it was easy to lose track of someone, and to locate them once separated, almost impossible. Her disappearance was considered odd, and a missing persons report was filed within 24 hours. Veronica came from a troubled background, and there was limited people in her life to follow up her whereabouts. However, she had shared with friends that she was planning to travel to Melbourne for the holiday break. So when she disappeared suddenly, it was assumed by the few that knew her that she must have simply made her way to Melbourne earlier than expected, and had left without saying goodbye. She was reported missing within the next 24 hours. Everyone thought, oh, maybe she tried to hitchhike to Melbourne. They made these assumptions and the reported person, uh, missing person file just um, in the end got shelved. Everyone gave up looking for Veronica. The 2nd of January, 1977, 10 days after the disappearance of Veronica Knight. Tanya Kenny had arrived in Adelaide after hitchhiking from Victor Harbour, a beachside town around 85 kilometres south of Adelaide. Tanya had spent the days prior in Victor Harbour 
and made her way to Rundle Mall, the same location Veronica had been 10 days prior. When Tanya failed to show at home that night, her parents assumed she had stayed longer with a friend than she had originally planned. When she failed to turn up the next day, they contacted police. The 21st of January, 1977. 16-year-old Julie Makita was working late in the city and had called her parents from work to let them know she would be home late. After her shift, she made her way to a bus stop outside a hotel on King William Street. The call she made home to her parents was the last time they heard her voice. When Julie had failed to return home the next day, her father made a series of calls to friends and hospitals in the area. Upon calling the police, his concerns were met with apathy. I got the usual story of I had a dollar for every worrying parent whose child hasn't come home for a while and I'd be a rich man and all that sort of thing. So they didn't really take us seriously, but I think by the third day we knew that something was very, very seriously wrong. A missing person report was filed with the others on the database. The 6th of February, 1977. The last known whereabouts of 16-year-old Sylvia Pittman was the Adelaide train station, waiting for a train home. The trail for her location went cold, and yet another missing person case was filed by her parents. At this stage, police had not linked a connection between the disappearances of the four girls, and despite ongoing searches, Sylvia had also vanished without a trace. The 7th of February, 1977, one day after the disappearance of Sylvia. Vicky Howell, a 26-year-old mother, had recently separated from her husband. She is last seen near the Adelaide Post Office. As with the previous girls, when she is not heard from, those close to her file a missing persons report. Her children wait in hopeful anticipation for news of her whereabouts. The 9th of February, 1977. 16-year-old Connie Jordan is last seen in the city centre of Adelaide. She is the next girl to disappear into thin air. Another missing person, another mystery. The disappearance of Connie brings a missing person's count to six. But the count wouldn't stop there. On the 12th of February, 1977, 20-year-old Deborah Lamb is on West Terrace, a main street in Adelaide that frames the west side of the city. She is hitchhiking. It would soon be the last ride she would be offered. Like the six girls before, a missing persons report was filed and there was no sign of Deborah. It would be over a year later before any clues surfaced. The 25th of April, 1978. William Thomas and his wife Velda are looking for mushrooms in bushland about 15 minutes east of the South Australian town of Truro. The bushland and paddocks providing a perfect backdrop for a day out. While going about their search, something protruding from a sandy section of nearby scrubland catches their attention. They move closer, now distracted from their mushroom hunt. Upon closer inspection, the pair can make out the distinct shape of a bone. 
the couple not wanting to believe the worst, right off the discovery as a cow bone, an occurrence not uncommon in Australian paddocks, and they quickly leave the scene. Days go by, and Valda can't erase the image of the bone from her mind. It haunts her to the point where she asks her husband William to escort her back to the area for another look, just to be sure. Upon their return to the familiar scene, they forage through the sand near the remains. This time, the discovery reveals something far more sinister. Attached to the end of the bone is a shoe. Police were called to the scene, and a forensic examination of the area also revealed bloodstains, clothing, and more bones. Perhaps the most disturbing, though, was the discovery of what lay inside the shoe. Pieces of human skin and painted toenails. The remains were identified as belonging to 18-year-old Veronica Knight, the very same who had disappeared from Rundle Mall while shopping with her friend. The discovery of human remains was a concern to police, but there was no evidence of foul play. Veronica may have simply wandered from the road to collapse from dehydration or exhaustion in the harsh Australian summer and was not treated as suspicious. Over a year later, the discovery would add new light to the case. The 15th of April, 1979, bushwalkers came across skeletal remains of a girl who was soon identified as Sylvia Pittman the 16-year-old who had disappeared while waiting for a train in Adelaide. This was of special interest to police due to Sylvia and Veronica disappearing around the same time and being found within one kilometre of each other. When the second one was found, it seemed logic that other bodies may well have been dumped in the Truro area. And we decided then that we would start a search of the area to see if any other bodies uh, were up there. Police swooped on the scene and a further search of the area revealed the remains of Connie Jordan and Vicky Howell. Connie being the 16-year-old who disappeared from the city of Adelaide and Vicky being the 26-year-old mother who was last seen at the Adelaide Post Office. Bringing the discovery to a total of four bodies partially buried in the same area. It looked like a serial killing at that stage, probably. You have to expect that a serial killer um, has habits that they tend to follow. Um, they find an area where they think it's safe to dump the bodies. Uh, becomes almost ritualistic. A check of the missing person register indicated that there were three more girls who had disappeared during the same period of time as the four they had just located and detectives held grim fears for their fate. It was also noted, while looking at the records, that there was a sudden decline in missing persons following the disappearance of this seven, and it seemed as if the killer had ceased carrying out their abductions and murders. This seemed odd to detectives, because looking at the abduction dates, there was an escalation in activity, and then a sudden stop. It didn't take us long to realise that we had uh, a start to it, which was uh, basically a point in time, then there appeared to be an acceleration, then a stop. And of course, the, the obvious conclusion is why. 
Did it stop? Something wasn't adding up, and it looked like they were facing a dead end. Although the term dead end would take on a new meaning with what detectives discovered next. Suddenly, detectives got a lead in the case, and a convicted violent sex offender who was released from jail just prior to the disappearance of the first victim came to their attention. The reason he was a person of interest was that he was dead. 23-year-old Christopher Robin Worrell had died on the 19th of February, 1977, just seven days after the disappearance of the last victim. The explanation police needed for the killings suddenly stopping. Christopher Worrell had served time for rape and had a checkered past of similar acts. He seemed like the perfect fit for the abductions and murders. Following an appeal to the public, police received intel that a person had been discussing details of murders similar to what had been recently reported on the news. It was the confirmation of the theory of the dead killer they needed. At Christopher Worrell's funeral, a man confided with Worrell's ex-girlfriend, implicating Worrell as being responsible for the murders of a number of girls, the town of Truro being mentioned as a dumping ground. The man was 38-year-old James William Miller, a former cellmate and friend of Worrell. He was also in the car crash that claimed Worrell's life. Christopher Worrell and James Miller met in Yatala prison when the two became cellmates. At face value, the pair were an odd couple. Worrell was in his early 20s and described by others as being handsome and charismatic. Miller was 40 years old, a drifter with sunken cheeks and far from charming. Below the surface, however, the two shared a dark common ground. James Miller was serving time for the abduction and rape of a teenage boy and Christopher Worrell was inside for the abduction and rape of a young woman. The time the two spent together forged a bizarre relationship. When released, the pair lived together, they worked together. Miller developed a strong infatuation with Worrell, who was almost 20 years his junior. At times, Worrell allowed Miller to perform sexual acts on him while he viewed pornography in the form of BDSM magazines. As time went on, Soon Worrell rejected Miller's advances, preferring the company of women, and the pair's relationship shifted to a bond, more like brothers. Miller became Worrell's chauffeur. The pair would prowl the Adelaide streets in a panel van, looking for girls for the charismatic Worrell to chat up. Worrell would convince the girls to accompany them to a secluded area, and he would try his luck, making sexual advances on them. Sometimes the advances were warmly received, Sometimes they weren't. All the while, Miller living vicariously through Worrell. Miller would be an active participant in scouting out girls for Worrell, often pointing out potential candidates for their sinister rendezvous. Worrell, being excited by BDSM, often tied up girls with rope in the back seat, all the while suppressing his true violent nature. Until the 23rd of December, 1976, the night he met Veronica. When the finger was pointed at James Miller by Worrell's ex-girlfriend, police swooped on him. He was brought into custody and interrogated. At first he denied any knowledge of the missing girls and was reluctant to talk, but upon being pressed further, he broke down. 
and gave a gruesome narrative of the abductions and murders beginning with Veronica Knight two days before Christmas in Rundle Mall, 1976. According to Miller, Veronica accepted a ride. They drove to the Adelaide foothills and he left her with Worrell in the back seat to go for a walk. When he returned, Veronica was dead, raped and strangled by Worrell. He claims that he confronted Worrell, but he produced a knife and threatened him. Fearing for his life, he drove Worrell and the body of Veronica to the remote bushland outside Truro, and the two carried her body into the scrub and covered her with sticks, leaves and bark. Here her remains would lie, deteriorated by the elements, and would be discovered by a couple foraging for mushrooms. On another prowl of the city, Miller dropped Worrell off at one end of Rundle Mall and circled the air in his car for a while. He spotted Worrell talking to a teenage girl. Worrell beckoned to Miller to pull over and jumped in the car accompanied by Tanya Kenny. They drove to Miller's sister's home in Woodville, a suburb approximately 10 kilometers northwest of Adelaide. According to Miller, Worrell asked Tanya to accompany him into the home. A few minutes passed and he heard a scream. He um, tells us that he heard a bit of a scream, a stifled scream. And uh, after a while, he went inside and found that Chris had strangled, apparently strangled um, Tanya. The two put her body in a cupboard and left the premises. They returned when it was dark to collect the body. Tanya was placed in the boot and the two made their way to Wingfield, a northern suburb of Adelaide. Her body was dumped and buried in a shallow grave that the two had prepared earlier that day. Julie Makita was approached by Worrell while she waited at the bus stop. He claimed that they were travelling in her direction and that it would be no trouble for them to offer a lift. Julie accepted the lift and got into the car with Worrell. Again, Miller is behind the wheel as they drive away, leaving the lights of the city and travel to a secluded area. Miller claimed that he went for a walk and while he was away, Worrell tied Julie's hands with a rope. She struggled against Worrell and somehow made her way out of the car door, running into the blackness of an unlit paddock. Upon hearing a disturbance, Miller said he turned around to see Worrell had chased her down and was in the process of strangling her. Miller claimed that he tried to pull Worrell off her, but he was too strong for him. Again, Worrell threatened to kill Miller, so Miller watched on, a silent spectator, as Julie was murdered by Worrell. Julie's body was loaded into the boot and dumped at Truro, not far from Veronica Knight. Her family was left to wonder about her whereabouts. When I got up the next morning, I found that she wasn't home. Um, I was angry. I was angry because she hadn't rung. Um, I was um, angry because it was very much unlike her to do that sort of thing. The fourth girl, Sylvia, was approached by Worrell while she waited for a train. He offered her a lift home, and she accompanied him to the car where Miller was waiting yet again. They drove to the Wingfield area. Miller parked the car and went for his usual walk. Upon his return to the car, Worrell had tied up, assaulted, and strangled Sylvia. The two followed their familiar routine, and her body was dumped in a remote area near Truro. Vicky Howell was the fifth girl to go missing. 
Miller claims that he had received a phone call from Worrell, instructing him to pick him up from the Adelaide post office. When he arrived, Worrell was waiting with Vicky, and the two were chatting. Miller claims she was happy to get into the car with the two, and Worrell instructed him to travel towards Nuriupta, an hour's drive north of the city. The significance of this location is that it's only about a 10 minute drive from Truro. Vicky met the same fate as the previous victims of the pair. As Connie Jordan waited in the city centre, she was approached by Worrell, who offered her a ride home. She accepted, but suddenly had cold feet when Miller started to drive her in the wrong direction. The pair took her to Wingfield. She was forced in the back of the car by Worrell and he carried out his familiar routine. Truro was also her final resting place. Which brings us to the seventh victim of the pair. The fact that she was hitchhiking made Deborah Lamb easy prey for Miller and Worrell. Miller claimed that on occasions he posed as Worrell's father to relieve the girl's concerns about getting into the car with strangers. This had served them well so far, and this time was no exception. Deborah accepted the ride and they made their way to Port Gawler, a beachside area 45 minutes north of the city. As usual, Miller parked the car, went for a walk and gave Worrell the time he needed to carry out his brutal acts. He claims that when he returned, Worrell was alone and kicking sand over a mound with his feet. Deborah Lamb's body was lying beneath it. Later, an autopsy would reveal that she was alive when she was buried. Miller showed an intimate knowledge of the crime scenes and was able to leave detectives to the remaining bodies. Based on his confessions, James Miller stood trial for the murders and was found guilty for six of the seven. The exception being for the first, the murder of Veronica Knight. The death of Christopher Worrell ultimately led to the discovery of the guilt of Miller, but it also served as a convenient scapegoat for him to attempt to relieve himself of being held responsible for the crimes, Miller attempting to brush his involvement aside as an unwilling and fearful accomplice. Even after being found guilty, James Miller wrote a book titled Don't Call Me a Killer, attempting to explain his innocence. But regardless of whether he laid a hand on the girls or not, he was the one that drove them to their fate, knowing full well of Worrell's intentions. Seven girls who would never return home again. Upon being found guilty of six counts of murder, he was sentenced to the maximum six consecutive terms of life imprisonment. In 1999, James Miller applied to have a non-parole period set under new laws. On the 8th of February 2000, Chief Justice John Doyle granted a non-parole period of 35 years, making Miller eligible for parole in 2014. Luckily, on the 21st of October 2008, at the age of 68, Miller died of liver failure. The only taste of justice the girls' families would be given. The ironic side note of this story is that when Christopher Worrell, the main perpetrator of the killings, died in a car crash, his headstone inscription read, Untold joy and love he brought to all. 
when his murders were discovered a year later, we would know otherwise.